So, a few months ago, I was supposed to preach in Romans 3, but I was too sick. And at the last minute, Pastor Tim took my place. And this morning, Pastor Tim was too sick, and so I'm filling in for him. And as I thought and prayed about what I would preach this morning, I decided to preach that sermon from Romans 3. And uh, I, I had thought at the time when I was sick that I guess God just doesn't want me to preach that. Uh, but now I'm thinking maybe he wanted me to preach it now instead of then. So don't be discouraged that we're going backwards in Romans instead of forwards today. Uh, instead, I want you to think with me that God must have wanted us to hear this message now. Two preachers had to get sick at the last minute for you to hear this message today. I think, and we know that God is the God of everything. And he has control over stomach bugs. And in fact, it, as I prayed about it this morning, it sets the, up very well for what I'll be preaching next week in Romans 7. Today's message was one that was uh, unexpectedly impactful for me as I prepared it because it's about the darkness of, of the bad news against which the, the good news of the gospel burns so brightly. There is an undeniable strength to the Christian worldview. Undeniable. One doctrine in particular that helps make sense of the world more comprehensively and profoundly than any other, what any other worldview has to offer. One doctrine that's nearly impossible to argue with the doctrine of sin, which teaches that humanity is inherently corrupt and broken. That in turning our back against the giver and sustainer of life, we have abandoned our very stabilizing and integrating force and have therefore become perpetually unstable and disintegrated. But our doctrine of sin teaches that it's more than just inconvenient, which of course it is, but it's also a great tragedy and a great offense because humanity is meant for so much more. We are uniquely crafted for incredible greatness and goodness. And as we all know, either by experience or by intuition, the greater the love and the greater the generosity and calling is to a person than the greater the offense and the tragedy when that person spurns or rebels or betrays. And it was the greatest love and the greatest generosity and the greatest calling given to humanity. And therefore the greatest offense and the greatest tragedy leading to cataclysmic brokenness and corruption. Humans are not good or even neutral. We are fatally flawed. And if you view this doctrine in isolation, we may sound a lot like, like, like we have a lot in common with cynics. You know, people who are perpetually bitter, call themselves realists. But of course, we don't hold this doctrine in isolation because united with this doctrine of sin, and integrated with it is the doctrine of humanity, which we've already noted that sin is so egregious because of the nature of man that we are images of the source of all life himself. And in this way, our view of sin is even deeper and darker than the perspective of the cynics because we've fallen so far. But our humanity is not as, our view of humanity is not as, as simple because we are still images of God. We still are, no matter how broken and defiled. 
So through the graffiti and through the cracks, we could still make out glimpses of glory. Can't we? And beyond that, the generous God that we have so thanklessly spurned is more generous still and will not even let humans utterly destroy his beloved humanity. And we'll get to that. But the reason I say the doctrine of sin is a great strength of our worldview is that it's so easily perceived. It is nearly self-evident. We can see the devastation of sin nearly every day. We aren't confused. We aren't at how destructive and disgusting and hateful the internet can be, right? It's shaped by sin. We aren't taken off guard at the corruption of leaders and the failure of governments to produce a utopia. We wouldn't expect such a thing in a sin-sick world. Dorothy Sayers once wrote about this after World War II, when many people were, many people were, were shaken by the perilous state of, of human society. And she said this, she said, the people who are most discouraged are those who cling to an optimistic belief in the civilizing influence of progress and enlightenment. But she says that we Christians know that there is a deep interior dislocation in the very center of human personality. The Christian dogma, which asserts that man is disintegrated and necessarily imperfect in himself and all his works, yet closely related by a real unity of substance with an eternal perfection within and beyond him, makes this present perilous state of human society seem less hopeless and less irrational. She's saying that our doctrine of sin and humanity makes the most sense of the world. It does. The doctrine, the Christian doctrine of sin makes the most sense of the world, but the next logical step that we often fail to deeply consider is that it also makes the most sense of me and my life. In Romans 3, the text that we'll be examining this morning, so you can go ahead and turn there, Paul's helping us take that next step of applying this doctrine to ourselves. In Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, he says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Our Father, <coughs> make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. 
So Paul here, he describes the fallen, sinful state of humanity with the, the poetry and the prophecies of the Jewish people. So he gathers a collection of statements to vividly describe our condition. And it's important to see what kinds of things he says about mankind. He starts with what they have failed to do, with what we have failed to do, the marks that we've missed. What's he say? They have not been righteous. They have not understood. They have not sought God. They have not done good. Then it switches to what they have done, the positive things they have done. They have used their tongues to deceive. They have, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. Then it ends with two more things they have not done. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. So sins of omission meaning what we have failed to do, failed to be, and then sins of commission, things that we have actively done wrong, and then two more sins of omission. I think it's important that the list begins and ends with what we are lacking, what we have failed to do, failed to be, what's missing from our lives. Sin is a vacuum, meaning a great emptiness, you can watch uh, amateur vacuum chamber <laughs> experiments online. They're, they're mesmerizing. These are containers that can pump all of the air out of them. And some, some of my favorites uh, that you can watch are uh, a bowl full of eggs placed in there uh, and, and a bunch of marshmallows. So the eggs that were in the vacuum chamber, they, they boiled, but without being cooked, which is really neat as you watch it happen. And the marshmallows... They, they became bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when the airs let back in, they were crushed down to tiny little marshmallow raisins. Even, even good things don't act rightly in the vacuum. They're trying to fill the void and they can't. Aristotle coined the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. The empty space always tries to be filled. Or have you seen people, uh, this is really cool. Have you ever seen people blow out the bottom of a, of a glass bottle by hitting uh, a, a bottle full of liquid? They hit the top really hard and it blows out the bottom of the glass bottle. This is because they, when they move that bottle that fast, it creates a tiny little vacuum in the bottom between the liquid and the glass. And the, glass ru I mean, the liquid rushes to fill the void of the vacuum so fast that it collides with the bottom of the bottle and blows it out. Because nature abhors a vacuum. Or even one that you've probably done is sucking the air out of a water bottle. And the bottle immediately does what? Implodes. This is true of the spiritual realm as well. We are meant to be filled. And when our souls are emptied, things try to fill the void in ways that they're not meant to do and are unable to do. And the effects can be disastrous. Both the things that we're, trying, we're using to try and fill the void can be stretched too thin or crushed. And to us also, the containers of the void can break or implode. So Paul begins with this emptiness, this lack, what we are lacking, lacking righteousness, a right relationship with God, lacking a pursuit of God, and therefore lacking understanding. Lacking good action, lacking peace, lacking fear of God. 
These are the things he lists. And then in that abhorrent vacuum, he tells us, our tongues, which are meant to tell truth, begin to deceive. Our mouths, which are meant to bless and praise, begin to curse and be bitter. Our feet, which in the proper spiritual atmosphere carry us in paths of peace, instead lead us down paths of ruin and misery, rushing like the liquid in that glass bottle and the result in breaking what's around it. Spiritually, when we are emptied of our pursuit of God and fear of God and love of God, it's an inviting and a welcoming atmosphere for evil. Jesus told a parable like that once, a parable of an empty house swept clean, but not filled. And he said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then after that, he told a little parable about an impure spirit coming out of a person. And he said, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and in there and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. A nice, tidy, empty home begging to be filled. And evil is happy to oblige. We've got to be filled up with good, filled with love, filled with God. We can't just tidy up an empty house and hope for the best. But that's what the best that the law can achieve by itself. And it's not enough. That's what Paul is saying. And by the law, he's talking about God's rules. When he tells us that through the law comes knowledge of sin, the law is beneficial in helping us identify these things about ourselves. But it's not beneficial in helping us fully and finally conquer them and overcome them. Under this weight of sin, your measly, twisted little willpower and self-righteousness is like trying to fill the void of outer space with the tiny stores of oxygen we have on earth. You can't make a dent. It's too large. The most that you could hope to accomplish would be to drain our planet of all its oxygen and improve nothing. It seems hopeless until you realize that there is one so big that his breath could fill the whole universe with air. And he wants to fill you, fill you with his righteousness where there is none, fill you with himself. Paul is saying even the wonderful gift of God's law cannot save us from sin. For that, we need something more. We need the righteousness of God to come into us from outside of us. And that is precisely what Jesus has made available to us. And the channel through which it flows is faith. This is the incredibly good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. The glorious grace of the gospel that we only see as good news and glorious when we rightly understand the immensity of sin. And also how its immensity falls like a blow of a great hammer knocking everything flat, equalizing all of humanity. We are all under this weight together. That's how Paul begins this passage. He says in verse nine, all 
Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. He says, everyone, including you. Now, this is difficult for us to accept. At least it's difficult for us to believe this about ourselves, which is why I think it's so brilliant how Paul approaches this text. Notice in your Bible, at verse 10 through 18, what's it look like? They're all quotations, right? It's a string of quotations. And these aren't just from one place. These are from multiple different places, mostly from the Psalms, a little bit from Isaiah, a little bit from Proverbs. And the vast majority of these really intense statements that Paul has collected in their original context are about who? Who do you think they're about? They're about enemies, about those people out there. These are songs where the people of God decry the obvious injustice of sin, of of the sin of those who are against them, those who are other than them. And what Paul is doing here then is something very important and profound. He's saying what you've made a habit of, of thinking about others' sins, you need to apply to yourself as well. Because it's easier for us to see this hard truth about other people than it is to see it about ourselves. For instance, we all have or have had problem people in our lives, haven't we? A boss, a coworker, a fellow churchgoer, a person in your friend group, even a family member, even a spouse maybe. Someone who can tend to make life harder, more burdensome for you. They have these blatant character flaws that you can diagnose quite easily, right? They're selfish or arrogant or impulsive or impatient. They're a liar or judgy. They're irritable or lazy or rude or just boring. And their flaws are intolerable to you. And we grumble about them. Someone will naively tell us to talk to the person. Try to work it out, they'll say. And maybe they'll even dare to suggest that the person isn't as putrid or irredeemable as we think they are. But what do they know? We say, they don't know how hard we've tried. It doesn't do any good to talk to this person. This person will either completely miss the point or misunderstand or worse, they'll sullenly promise to change and then never do. So we start hoping for a change in our situation. But with time, we grow jaded to the grass is greener philosophy Does any of this sound familiar? Of course, these kinds of situations, we, in these situations, we often have our perception of things amplified by emotion and distorted by hatred. But take that away. And even in our most lucid moments of evaluation, when we rightly and and truly find fault, then, In those moments, we are only seeing and experiencing what God does all the time. Aren't we? You see yourself as clashing with this person or these people. Well, God clashes with them as well. And the problem is, his his problem, his problem with this person is even deeper than yours. He too has done his part to fix things. He sent his son to die far more than you've done. And you can see their sin so clearly, but he sees it even more clearly, even more deeply than you can. And even you can see how it's wrecking this person's life, but he can see how it's wrecking their life even more. And you can see how it's unbearable and annoying, but God sees it as even worse than that. 
He sees what you cannot even see about that person. But he also sees something that you can't see, that you don't see. He sees the same things in you. And how you dismiss criticism about yourself as misunderstandings or excusable for this reason or for that. Or the critics, they're just jealous or ignorant. Or I was in a bad mood. But use your reason here for a minute. When the number of actual selfish people in the world is far larger than the amount of people who would label themselves as selfish, that should tell us something, shouldn't it? That we don't see the flaws in ourselves as clearly as we see the flaws in others. And Paul is taking those clear-minded evaluations of others that we have in diagnosing their sin that the Jewish people have recited together throughout the ages in the Psalms. And he's saying, now apply those to yourself. It's like when the, Nathan, when the prophet Nathan came to King David to confront him about his sin, and he wisely knew that David, like all men, could ignore or excuse or explain away his own sin. So Nathan told him a parable of a situation that was an allegory of David's own sin. And he asked David to find the fault, which David could easily do because it wasn't him, it was someone else. And he could, like we all see, easily see the sin of others. So David pointed out the sin and then Nathan said, you are the man. You are that man. And David broke down. Paul is doing the same thing here in this text. He's saying that person that plagues you, that inexcusable person, you are that person to others. You are that person to God. He's trying to get us to face our sin with the same steady gaze of justice that we do in facing others' sins. Not to make excuses for ourselves, because only then will we really seek the forgiveness of grace. Recently, I, I told you guys about uh, C.S. Lewis's important distinction between forgiveness and being excused. I want to read you a little bit more from that essay. He said, if you had a perfect excuse, you would not need forgiveness. If the whole of your actions need forgiveness, then there was no excuse for it. But the trouble is, what we, all, what we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. What then leads us into this mistake is the fact that there usually is some amount of excuse, some extenuating circumstances. So we are very anxious to point these things out to God and to ourselves. And we're so, we, we're so eager to do that that we are apt to forget the very important thing. That is the bit left over. The bit which the excuses don't cover. The bit which is inexcusable but not, thank God, unforgivable. And if we forget this, we shall go away imagining that we have repented and been forgiven when all that has really happened is that we have satisfied ourselves with our own excuses. Paul is saying here that we are without excuse, but that doesn't mean that we have to be without forgiveness. When he points out the state of our sin, it's not a guilt trip. It's, he's not shaming. He's getting us to come to grips with reality so that Paul, Paul knows that it's healthier to think more of your own sins than you do of other people's sins. 
And that, lead, that it leads to happiness and righteousness when it's done through the gospel. Because through it, through this, this, though it's dreadful, thinking of your own sins, it leads to the relief of the unbearable load that has been breaking our backs. Because when we seek true forgiveness, rather than just seeking for God to accept our excuses, when we seek forgiveness on account of the grace of God and Jesus, the incredible truth is that we receive it. We receive forgiveness. Because that unbearable load, Jesus bore it. He takes our sin and pays for it completely, covers it, removes it, destroys it. Most importantly, he replaces it. And it's in its place he gives us something infinitely more significant. Sin is a great void and he gives us something substantial that not only fills but overflows and enlargens. He gives us his own righteousness. Through our faith in him, he unites us to himself and through that union flows to us all the benefits of his standing before God the Father. It is the great trade of our salvation. And we can understand what we are saved to by understanding what we're saved from. If we take another good look at this list that Paul has compiled about the sinfulness of man, we can understand sin a little bit better, which I think is really important. So let's do that. What can we learn about the nature of sin from what Paul has said about it? He's actually designed this collection of quotations intentionally. He starts with showing the core or root of the problem, and then he goes on to share the results of that one part of our being, uh, the results of that problem on one part of our being, and then on another part of our being. And then he gives a final summary statement. So let's look at each of these. He begins by saying that the core issue and problem with sin is an orientation away from God. This is the core problem with sin. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. So we've turned away from God. The trajectory of our souls is meant to be aimed at God and we've turned our backs on him. And therefore, we lack righteousness. Righteousness is talking about that right relationship with God. This is why God created us. He is the reason for our existence. And our disregard of him is a cosmic outrage. And notice how he says, in living like this, people become worthless. We trade away our worth because our worth comes from the only worthy one. Our role as his images displaying his worth. Paul is saying that the most ultimate and essential thing about sin is not the devastation it leaves in its wake, not the broken relationships and the, the misery and the mess that it makes. The primary evil is the rebellion against our creator's love and generosity. When we receive from his hand all the things that we take and then use in ways that dishonor him. In treating the most valuable and lovable and worthy one of all as though he were worthless. As though he were literally worth less than what we spend our lives pursuing. But he is not. He is worth more than everything combined. And our sin is in many ways insanity. We'll never grasp the weight of sin if we don't understand this. That it's about our ruined relationship with God. 
not just about us and other people and rules. It's about our treason against the king by not loving him with all of our hearts and all of our souls and minds and strength. He deserves all of us and we give him so little. He loves us and we take advantage of him. He made us and owns us and sustains us and we value ourselves more than him. The bigger your view of God, the bigger your view of sin. And you can't conceive of how big God really is. But like I said, when we see the nature of sin from this text, we can also see the nature of salvation. Because Jesus, he more than counters each point. So we were unrighteous, the text tells us. Well, he shares his righteousness with us. We did not understand. He teaches us wisdom. We did not seek God. He unites us with himself to be with him forever. We turned away. He turns us toward him to behold his glory. Now in a glass dimly, but one day face to face. Jesus not only puts us in good and right standing before God, but he puts us in his standing before God. I'm telling you, this is good news, friends. But there's more to sin beyond its essential nature is turning away from God. If that's the disease, we must look at its destructive symptoms, the symptoms of that disease and how it affects our relationship to fellow human beings. And what Paul turns to next, he does that in in two parts. First, how it affects our speech. And second, how it affects our actions. So first, our speech. Or as he says, our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouths. Those are the words he uses. In verses 13 through 14, he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The language of the grave and venom raise the stakes here. Our speech becomes deadly because it becomes deceptive, bitter, and full of curses. James, the author of this scriptural book by the same name, understood this. Let me read you a paragraph from his letter where he talks about this aspect of sin. Nobody says it better than James does, so I'm just going to read you this whole paragraph. He says, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, this part I want you to listen to closely, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Sin takes a tool of blessing and praise. Our voice, which is to be an instrument meant for the most glorious of purposes. And sin distorts it into a tool of chaos and contention. And Jesus says, I can restore it. You can't but I can make it what it was meant to be. I can make you speak truth. I can restore your heart to flow out of your mouth joy rather than bitterness. 
Blessing rather than cursing. Celebrating rather than gossip. This part of sin is so important for Paul to point out. He, he uses three different scriptural references for it. So it's an important part of the restoration of our salvation. You need to be submitting to this kind of change, inviting the spirit to do this work, longing for it, hating the sin that speaks bitterly or deceptively and loving the Lord who leads you into a better way. But it's not just about how we talk. It's also about how we walk. The next section Paul, of sin about St. Paul points out, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. So a right relationship with God would mean peaceful relationships with his images, other humans. But in sin, we are not at peace. We are eager to get revenge. We are apathetic to misery. We are rushed in pursuits for the self and slow to care for others. And like I said at the beginning, we look, we look out on the misery and the mess of global history and we see this to be true, don't we? Relationships and societies are strained in this fallen world. The making of peace is not a priority. And Paul explains why. And after this section, Paul brings us back to the beginning. He ends this string of quotations by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He's reiterating how it's all about God. Or really, we should say sin is all about how it's not about God. In his treatise on the nature of true virtue, Jonathan Edwards explained how sin destroys societies not just individuals. He says a society is deeply fragmented when anything but God is our highest love. For instance, if our highest goal in life is the good of our family, then we will care less for other families. If our highest priority is the good of our nation, tribe, or race, then we will tend to be racist or nationalistic. If our ultimate aim is for our own individual happiness, then we will put our own economic power and interests ahead of others. Edward says that only if God is our ultimate good and the center of our life will we find our heart drawn towards other people, other families, other races, other classes, and the whole world. Sin is not simply doing bad things. Doing bad things is a symptom of sin. Sin is relating to God wrongly. And as he said in chapter one of Romans back then, go, to go back even further, it's putting the things God made in the place of God himself. Amen. So the only solution is not only to change our behavior, but to reorient and recenter our entire heart and life on God. This is why the fear of God is so important. Because it's an essential element to remaining in right relationship with God. We all know the difference between a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear. Fear becomes unhealthy in at least two ways. So it can be unhealthy when it's connected to something that shouldn't be feared at all, like strange phobias of like mittens or something, mitten phobia. And it could also become unhealthy in another way, when it's paralyzing and an undue burden beyond what is helpful. But a healthy fear keeps you in right relationship to a thing. 
There is a healthy fear. It keeps you in right relationship to a thing. A healthy fear of heights, for instance, won't keep you from hiking a scenic mountain trail, but it does make you treat the edge of the cliff with respect. A healthy fear of fast-moving cars will not keep you from ever crossing a road, but it will make you double-check before crossing. A healthy fear keeps you in right relationship to a thing. I was just talking the other, well, uh, a while back uh, with uh, a young family member of mine who, <laughs> about spanking. And I know different people have different opinions about spanking. Uh, and I'm a proponent of it as long as it's not done in fits of anger. Amen. And as long as the child is reassured of love afterward. Amen. Well, my little family member who had never been spanked, uh, he, he told, was telling me that, and, he, and I, he told me he'd never been spanked. And I told him, well, you're going to have to be careful that you don't become spoiled and rebellious. And he said that he'd been told spanking just makes you afraid of your parents. And you know what? In one sense, that's true. When done correctly, it produces a healthy fear of your parents, which keeps you in right relationship with them, that of obedience and restraint. Children who are unrestrained in their desires and consistently disobedient lack a healthy fear of their parents. And human beings in general who are unrestrained in their desires and consistently disobedient lack a healthy fear of God. But I'm really sympathetic to the opposing opinion about spanking, that it is far better to obey out of love and desiring the good. And that's true. And that's what Christianity teaches as well. That's what my sermon last week was all about. That mere external behavior modification is not the goal. Spanking is at best a supplemental tool to a much broader environment of intentional love and discipleship. But we have to remember that it's not an either or situation. It's both and. And it's, at the, it's the same with the law and the gospel. Paul didn't say that the law was bad. He said it wasn't enough. It's actually very good and serves a wonderful and important purpose, but all by itself, it is powerless to move this mountain of sin like a bulldozer without a driver. He says in verse 19 through 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He says that the law reveals the depth of sin within us, helps us know it. And as the art of war says, we need to know our enemy. That's a good thing but then it makes it clear that the law can't save you. Amen. You can't be good enough because you are utterly ruined by sin. So remember the first thing that he said about sin, that none is righteous. And the Greek word for righteousness and justice are the same, dikaiosune. So when he says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, he's talking about the same thing, being made righteous, being righteous. So if we lack righteousness and the law can't make us righteous, what hope do we have? We need righteousness. We need to be justified. But where will this righteousness come from if it can't come from us and it can't come from the law? It must come from another who never gave in to the corruption of sin. One who is both willing to bear the penalty of our sin and able to, bear, to fully bear it. One who wants us 
and is willing to be legally and organically united with us for all of eternity, like an eternal marriage, so that through that union, we are able to share his righteousness and stand with him, in him before God. This is the way of Jesus, of our Savior. Sin is a vacuum within our souls that will cause us to collapse and implode. Only our creator God, our redeeming God, is sufficient to fill that empty chamber of our soul. That is the greatness human beings were meant for. We were made for that. And you can, we cannot endure anything else, anything less for long. Jesus invites you to see the truth about yourself. But more importantly, to see the truth about him. That he is able and he is willing to fill that void. To offer himself to you and save you fully and finally trust in him today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your law and the knowledge of sin. But most of all, we thank you for your son and the slaying of sin. I pray that you fill us all with godly sorrow at knowing just a little bit of how far we've fallen. But also fill us with unshakable confidence in the grace of Christ and what he has accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection to bring us near to you, Father. We pray with him. Amen.